We're continuing on in paragraph 2 of chapter 21 of our Confession of Faith. We're dealing specifically with the binding of conscience, how conscience is bound and and what exactly that means. Um, We've seen uh, our confession says that God alone is Lord of the conscience. What does that mean? Um, How does that play out in real life? I think there's a lot of misunderstanding uh, about what this means in our own day. Uh, And I think there's a lot of even misunderstanding of some people uh, in some conversations I've had uh, elsewhere where even um, they don't, they'll read guys like Perkins on conscience, but I don't think they totally, they're totally getting the nuance he's saying there. So I think even for reform people sometimes, um, there's, there's a lot that is under, misunderstood about conscience. We saw two weeks ago that to bind conscience has uh, a bit more of the nuanced meaning uh, during the time that our confession was written than in our own day. I think today, people uh, speak of being bound in conscience, meaning you are required to obey a certain authority. You are required to... to fulfill a certain command or something like that. Um, That's partly true. That's partly true. However, as we saw for the early reformers and Puritans, to bind the conscience meant something a little bit more than one ought to obey some lawful authority. Rather, it means not only that one ought to obey, but one also ought to affirm that such and such a commandment is in and of itself either morally good or evil. It is, in fact, sin in and of itself. I think that's the, the operative phrase, in and of itself, okay? That's what it means to say your conscience is bound to something. This being the meaning, then, of the binding of conscience, we saw that God alone, God only, can properly speaking bind conscience, even if there are other lawful uh, human authorities. And, and many, uh, God has instituted many lawful human authorities, the civil government, um, uh, the church, elders. Um, I, w- I would also say, obviously, husbands and in, even mothers, um, things like that, uh, mothers over their own children, things like that. There's all kinds of lawful authorities, and yet none of these, properly speaking, can be said to bind the conscience. We saw that even if a lawful authority uses, gives some kind of commandment, if God's word has not spoken against it, and not merely not spoken against it, but maybe not said anything about it at all, it is truly a matter indifferent, we are free in conscience from the laws of men, whether in terms of civil society, ecclesial, all of the spheres. And yet, as we saw, uh, the nuance of this, this is where it gets tricky, is that in many cases, though you are not bound in conscience, in conscience by a specific commandment, yet you are bound in conscience to the commandment to obey a lawful authority, and you ought to still obey that commandment for the sake of conscience. Perkins explains it, um, this as owing subjection for the sake of conscience but not in conscience. It's it's a nuance. You ought to obey a certain lawful authority, even if it's technically about something indifferent, okay? Not because the thing in and of itself is not indifferent, but because God has instituted that authority. 
It's kind of a nuanced argument, but, but he makes it, and it's common in others. For example, speaking of Romans 13.5, he says, Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid... Or I'm sorry, Paul says this. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Perkins says, Between these two, there is a great difference. To be subject to authority in conscience and to be subject to it for conscience as will be manifest if we do but consider the phrase of the apostle. The meaning whereof is that we must perform obedience not only for the avoiding of punishment, but also for the avoiding of sin, and so by consequent for avoiding a breach in conscience. So to disobey the government, even uh, now depending on this, right, um, this is not a blank check for the government, and we'll get into that, um, but if it is a matter indifferent and it is, if it is genuine or generally a wholesome law, to disobey the government in that case would be to violate conscience. It would be sin, but not because the thing is in and of itself sin, right? And we'll give some examples of this later. He says, now this breach is not properly made because man's law is neglected, but because God's law is broken, which ordaineth civil government and which nevertheless binds men, men's consciences to obey their lawful commands. Elsewhere, he explains, magistracy, or civil government, indeed is an ordinance of God to which we owe subjection. But how far subjection is due, there is the question. For body, goods, and outward conversation, I grant all. Now, we considered what those were two weeks ago, body, goods, and outward conversation, Body means the body. Your, your body may be summoned to appear in court, right? Lawfully, they have that authority. Your goods, in the sense of your wealth, your property, probably referring to taxes. And then outward conversation, not meaning speaking. Conversation has a different meaning back then. Um, but perhaps either your outward behavior. Um, you can't light us. You can't, like, just go and start a fire in the middle of the street just because you want to. Um, there might not be a law against that. That'd be okay in that case, but they have authority to make some rules like that. Conversation might also refer, in this case, uh, the wording back then to maybe business, commerce. Maybe it would be talking about the regulating of those things. Perkins says, in all of those things, we owe subjection. He says, I grant that. Nevertheless, he says, but a subjection of conscience to man's laws I deny. Okay? So you see there's a lot of nuance here. And I think, I think it's the nuance that is so often missing when people discuss conscience, even people who are typically Reformed, and even some who might uh, even have read Perkins. They would, they would take something like this, uh, and I've, I've known some people take certain passages and kind of run with it in a way that I don't think he actually means. Next, we consider the binding of conscience, not properly by God, but improperly as regards human laws. And again, here we made several important important distinctions. First, Perkins says of the improper binder of conscience, he says, the improper binder is that which hath no power or virtue in itself to bind conscience, but doth it only by virtue of God's word or of some part of it, okay? So we can say that in an improper sense, even human laws bind the conscience, in fact, he goes on to say that where a human law is simply a reiteration of God's law, 
it has more force to it and could even be then be said to be divine, even though it's rearticulated by humans. He said, if the case fall out as commonly it doth, that human law be not enacted of things indifferent, but of things that be good in themselves, notice that, good in themselves, that is commanded by God, then they are not human properly, but divine laws. Men's laws and treating of things that are morally good and the parts of God's worship are the same with God's law and therefore bind conscience, not because they were enacted by men, but because they were first made by God, men being no more but instruments and ministers in his name to revive, renew, and put in execution such precepts and laws as prescribe the worship of God standing in the practice of true religion and virtue. And he's speaking there of worship, but we could say that about the moral law as well. There's a law against murder, right, as there ought to be. Um, Well, that's not man's law. That wasn't man's idea. That's more fundamental than that, and it's not a matter indifferent, right? It is um, something, well, murder is bad in and of itself because God has declared it to be so. Again, uh, we could see this uh, in our constitution and bylaws of our own church. Um, There are many directions and rules that are taken there directly from God's word, and so they have more force. Um, You know, there there are some things in them that are truly matters indifferent. In fact, when our, our committee met, there are certain votes that require a higher majority because they are bigger deals. I forget exactly what they were. Some require three-fifths, and some require three-fourths, I think, or maybe two-thirds or something, right? Another church might do that differently and not be in sin. A three-fourths majority is not laid down in God's word. We might say, we, you should, it's wiser, but it truly is a matter indifferent, and we would not say you're in sin. There are other things in our Constitution, like that elders can only be men They must meet certain qualifications. Those are not things indifferent. That was not Sovereign Joy's idea, right? Those have more uh, more force than a three-fourths majority, if that makes sense, right? Nevertheless, the church having instituted and ordained these percentages, they are to be followed. And they are even, in a certain sense, improperly, but nevertheless true, binding not because of anything inherently holy about a three-fourths majority, but because of the authority of the church which voted on the matters, and Christ has given authority to to determine such things for the carrying out of his commands. Well, what I'd like us to do then today is to move on, perhaps to a little bit more controversial stuff, uh, even more of a fun, fun question, um, and that question is, at what point can you say, uh, say no to a lawful authority and not violate conscience, right? Is there such a place? Um, Can you do such a thing and why? Here, first of all, we should always, we should clarify, you should never, ever, ever, if we were to be Michael Scott, with any person, under any circumstances, all that, you know, the whole thing he does anyway, Um, submit to any lawful authority if they are commanding you to sin. You just don't do it. If it's not a matter indifferent, it's off the table. It doesn't matter if, if the Apostle Paul were to command you to do something, right? It's still sin. It's not a matter indifferent. Perkins says, God's word is to be obeyed, though we should offend all men, 
yea, lose all men's favor and suffer the greatest damage that may be even the loss of our lives. Again, I think Peter and John standing before the council are a good example of this. They say to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. So the council, they were a lawful authority. They're essentially the uh, kind of a, both the religious and the civil authority kind of wrapped into one, the, the Sanhedrin. Um, they're a lawful authority, and yet they're commanding them to no longer preach in the name of Jesus, which is a direct violation of God's word and commandment. And in such case, they're not to be obeyed. Whether it is right to obey you or God, you be the judge, right? However, what do we do in cases where a lawful authority commands something that is a thing indifferent, but is still not the best kind of law? Or in some cases, we might say it's, it's a bad law, it's tyranny in the worst case. What do we do in those cases? Um, here, I would say there are three appropriate responses for the Christian, generally. There's kind of a, yeah, we'll, we'll see. There's three, you could say four, I guess, but we'll say there's three. And they depend entirely on the specifics of the circumstances, okay? The first one is, not, is the not-so-fun one, and it's submit, <laughs> which everyone's like, get to the anarchy, come on, we're not quite there yet, we will get there eventually, Okay? The first response possible of the Christian is to submit. Now, we must be careful. This would be in matters that are indifferent, and yet in which we might say, we're not convinced this is the best law, but it's by no means the worst. We would say it's generally a good law, right? Um, let's say, for example, we could do this with all kinds of things, but let's just... Let's just Pick on speed limits, okay, something like that. Um, let's say, what is, does it ever get to 75 in Texas? Do you guys ever do that? Okay. So let's say, um, is that like more out in the country? You guys know something? Down 35? Okay. Let's say on a certain stretch of highway, some local authority, county, state, whatever, were to determine that even on a certain day, um, it's no longer going to be 75, it's going to be 70, all right? Now, let's say they have various reasons for that. We could even say there's been a lot of accidents on this stretch of highway at this certain time. They kind of, there's some reason behind it. It's not absolutely arbitrary, but they do it, and we might think that's, that's lame. Like, we don't think that's appropriate. You should just keep it at 75. You don't totally agree with their reasons. Maybe it's not such a high level of accidents something, you're not entirely persuaded of it, right? Do you then no longer have to obey it? No, you have to. It would still be, although the, the thing in and of itself is truly a matter indifferent, some states have uh, slower uh, speed limits, some have faster. In Europe, in some places, they don't even, don't even have speed limits, right? You can drive various things, and it's not necessarily a sin in and of itself, but if the government has ordained it, and it's generally a wholesome law, you should still obey it, even if you're not entirely convinced, okay? Furthermore, they have to have some kind of a reason. Um, we may disagree with them, but they're not doing it out of, uh, for no reason. The term that they would use, older writers would use, 
is that it's an arbitrary law. Do you know what arbitrary means? Who can tell me? What is the older meaning of arbitrary? It actually has more of a specific meaning. Who can tell me? What do we mean when we say that's arbitrary? No reason, right? Maybe kind of random. What it actually really means is of mere will. Arbitrium in Latin means will, right? And, and all the Reformed writers who you would read on this, or even just anyone would say, there should never, even a lawful authority should never give a command of mere will. You should avoid arbitrary laws. And that's what it means to be arbitrary. So let's say it's not arbitrary, okay, but we still disagree with them. Perkins categorizes this as what he, he would call a wholesome law. Maybe they're not the best, but they're still wholesome. He says, wholesome laws of men made of things indifferent bind conscience by virtue of the general commandment of God, which ordaineth the magistrate's authority. So as whosoever shall wittingly and willingly with a disloyal mind either break or omit such laws is guilty of sin before God. And he continues, by wholesome laws, I understand such positive constitutions as are not against the law of God and also tend to maintain the peaceable estate and common good of men. So you might not agree that a certain law is best, but generally it doesn't go against God's law and it tends to maintain the peaceable estate and common good of men. So let's take this for one moment out of the civil sphere. Let's put it in the church. Let's say on that committee when we revise the Constitution and bylaws, maybe there was one brother who really wanted a three-fourths majority and another really wanted, and the others all wanted a three-fifths, right? At the end of the day, a three-fourths and a three-fifths majority, the difference between them, while perhaps not insignificant, is also not terribly great. They both tend towards maintaining the peaceable estate and common good of the church right? You might disagree. You might think one should be larger, one should be smaller, but they still generally tend towards the same end. And so we would say it's still wholesome, right? Maybe not perfect, but it's still wholesome. Now, there are two reasons given for why we should obey generally wholesome laws, even if we don't think they're perfect. These two reasons seem to be common throughout Reformed writers. And in fact, I would actually like to do more research on this. I found even some medieval writers uh, for some of these concepts. They probably go back even farther, but I'll, I'll only really deal uh, with Reformed writers. Now, these are two. There's namely two reasons. First, in such circumstances, we are to obey for the sake of the authority itself that God has instituted. For the sake, the sake of the authority itself that God has instituted. And if we were to disobey, theologians would call this a contempt of authority. We still kind of use that. I hold you in contempt of court, right? Um, you are in contempt of the authority of the court. So, so even if you don't totally agree to disagree, to disagree with what is generally a wholesome law, uh, that would be contempt of authority, okay? The other reason that they talk about commonly is that we are to obey for the avoiding of scandal, the giving of offense. Um, in Greek, scandalon is a stumbling block, okay? And perhaps there might be a case in which it, you don't really 
give contempt of an authority, but it nevertheless causes a stumbling block, right? Um, and Christians are to live peaceable lives. We're to put nothing uh, that would give offense for the, that would inhibit the, the spreading of the gospel. And so you ought not to do it in those two cases, okay? Now, like I said, these two reasons, uh, you find these again and again in Reformed writers. Let me just give you a smattering, if you will. For example, the Scottish Presbyterian George Gillespie says, But besides the case of scandal or contempt, theologians teach that conscience is not bound by the rules of the church made about order and policy. Okay? Besides the case of scandal or contempt, divines teach that conscience is not bound by the rules of the church made about order and policy. In other words, our consciences are not bound by certain church decisions or rules, things indifferent, okay, three-fourths majority, except in such cases where to disobey would result in contempt or scandal. So let's say a certain, there would to be a, a church who, a, a church meeting where there was not a three-fourths majority, and they said, uh, well, this is sufficient. We have enough. We didn't quite meet that. We're going to move forward. This is, this is now, maybe we've chosen a new elder, okay? That's contempt of the church's authority, which put that in place. Does that make sense? Turretin, he says the following about scandal and contempt. He also makes a helpful distinction here that you'll also find, I've kind of said it, you may not have picked up on this, um, between what he calls ecclesiastical laws uh, and what are referred to as canons or constitutions. The difference between the two is, is the difference uh, in our constitution and bylaws between things that are taken directly from God's word. That's ecclesiastical law. The other things are matters indifferent that are used for good order and things like that. Those are constitutions. That's, that's the term that theologians use as well, Okay. But listen to what he says. We must accurately distinguish between laws properly so called, which are made with jurisdiction, and canons or constitutions which pertain to direction. Laws sanction the essence of divine worship, and it belongs to God alone to give them as the Lord of the soul, as Lord of souls. But constitutions direct men in the practice of worship prescribing its order and manner as to place, time, and other external circumstances, which can be variously altered as edification demands. Laws bind the conscience per se and indirectly, and a violation of them incurs guilt. But constitutions bind the conscience only indirectly and immediately in case of scandal and contempt. Okay, you see scandal and contempt. Um, okay, and, and then uh, let me give another example. Perkins is, is helpful on this. He has another helpful uh, concept, which I've, this is the one I found even farther back. I found this as far as Aquinas. I imagine it goes back even farther. But it's the idea of doing something not against a law, but besides the law. There might be something that you do that we might say, well, technically you're going against the law, but if there are um, uh, other reasons that supersede it, they would say, well, no, you haven't broken the law. You've done something besides the law, okay? Listen to what Perkins says. Hence, it followeth that a man may do anything beside human law and constitutions without breach of conscience. For if he shall omit the doing of any law 
one, without hindrance of the end and particular considerations for which the law was made. Two, without offense, giving as much as in him lieth, that's scandal. And three, without contempt of him that made the law, he is not to be accused of sin. Okay? So think about this again in terms of, we could say, speed limits, right? Let's say um, they say on this time of the day, at this stretch of highway, it's going to be 65. Well, let's say something happens and somebody is bleeding out and you need to get to the hospital. You throw them in the car. You're flying down the road as fast as you can without hopefully yourself getting into an accident. Have you broken the law? Have you sinned? Well, actually, Perkins would say you, you haven't sinned. You've acted beside the human law. And it's because you've, you've not gone against those three things, right? You haven't um, given a hindrance of the end and the particular considerations for which the law was made. Speed limits were meant to preserve life. In that particular case, you yourself are trying to preserve life of the person who is bleeding out. Secondly, you have not given an offense to those around you, either in the church or those without. In fact, I would say the average person would be offended if you didn't drive faster to go get to the hospital to save the person. And lastly, you've not done it with contempt from the law. Um, unless Joe were like following you and you're like, ah, Joe, what are you going to do? You can't pull me over. I've got somebody bleeding in here. That might be contempt. But as long as you're not doing like, things like that, you're not trying to... to have contempt for the authority, right? And in that case, there is no sin. Perkins gives the following example. In time of war, the magistrate of a city commands that no man shall open the gates. The purpose is that the city and every member thereof may be in safety. Now, let's say it fall out that certain citizens, being upon occasion without the city, are pursued by the enemy and in danger of their lives. Hereupon, some man within openeth the gate to rescue them. The question is whether he hath sinned or no, and the truth is he hath not, because he did not hinder the end of the law, but rather further it, and that without scandal to men or contempt of the magistrate. Okay? So again, all these examples here, I'm just trying to show you, you see this again and again in Reformed writers, in things indifferent, if it may not be perfect, it's still a wholesome law, you are to obey for the sake of, uh, for the avoiding of contempt and the avoiding of scandal, okay? Now, as far as contempt, avoiding contempt, uh, where do we see this in Scripture? That if a law is generally, though not perfectly good, we still ought to obey it. I would say that we see it in a phrase that is, is found across the board when the, when the topic of subjection to authority comes up. Whether you're talking about subjection to government, uh, wives to husbands, children to parents, uh, even uh, slaves to masters, all those, you see a common phrase, and the phrase is, in all things, or maybe in everything, right? There's kind of an allness to this authority that is given there. For example, Matthew 23, 1 through 3. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Now, that means they're not merely religious authorities, but they're also civil authorities as well, okay? Jesus says, so do and observe whatever they tell you. There's an allness to it. 
but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. Okay, but again, he tells them, do whatever they tell you. Colossians 3.22, bond servants obey in everything, in everything, those who are your earthly uh, masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Ephesians 5.24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now again, I would argue this phrase is repeated again and again to stress we are to obey even if we're not entirely persuaded that something is the best course of action, as long as it's not going directly against God's word and as long as there is some general reason for it, right? It's not arbitrary. In that case, we are to obey and to not do so would be contempt. For example, one Puritan uh, comments on Ephesians 5.24 saying, Wives are to submit in everything, in things great and small, agreeable and disagreeable to her. Only when the husband requires what God forbids or forbids what God requires is she to refuse submission. She may reason with him in things inconvenient to her, but if he will not be persuaded and there is no sin in the case, it's a matter indifferent, she must submit to him. I would generally agree with that. And I would say, just from the perspective of reason alone, I think there would be a total breakdown of order if the only time that someone obeyed was if they fully agreed that something was entirely right. Um, think about with your children. Um, they, there are times when they genuinely do not think you have told them something wise or good. Um, and in that case, we'd be like, well, if you're not persuaded, you don't have to agree, obey your father. We'd be like, no, you should obey your father right now. And if you don't, that will be contempt, not even of your father's authority, but moreover of God who instituted that authority, right? We could say this, um, we could say this with husbands and wives. Um, man, there are times when, uh, yeah, I, I, I can think of several situations in marriage, and, and I think if there were times when Annika only submitted when she agreed with me, I, I think we'd, <laughs> there'd be a lot of big decisions that we actually never, we, we would be at an impasse, right? Um, and so I think that's just for a reason alone, you would have a breakdown of authority, okay? We are to obey in all things. Second, we are also to avoid scandal. Now, we have looked at this a little bit already in terms of not grieving our brothers and sisters, but it also applies uh, to submission to authorities. For example, we see this in Matthew 17, 24 through 27. It says, When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? Now, as far as this particular tax, by the time of Christ, it had become a relatively old law in Israel. Um, the funds of it were given to pay for the maintenance of the temple. However, it was not universally agreed that this tax was actually required by the law of Moses. Um, there are certain census taxes in the Old Testament, but it's not clear if those are annual or they were a one-time event. Um, and that was something that was debated um, even in Christ's own day. And so it may have been some people didn't believe that, that it was actually required by God's law, and you're saying, I have to pay this, right? Furthermore, two drachmas was the equivalent of a Roman denarius. It was basically a day's wage. 
Not enormous, but if you're relatively of humble means, it's not small either. In addition to this, it seems that this tax had to be paid with coins that had been made in the city of Tyre on the coast, which meant that if the funds were sent to Jerusalem, they had to be changed into the shekel, and this would be another excuse for money changers to make money. And so there would be all kinds of reasons why people might not agree with this tax. They might not think it's commanded. They might think this is just a way for the rich to get richer, all kinds of things. And so these men ask, does your teacher, does Christ pay the tax, right? Well, the passage continues in 25. It says that Peter said, yes. When he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax from their sons or from others? When he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Now, what Jesus is most likely getting at is that he is the son of God. He is the son of the one who dwells in the temple, right? Why should he have to necessarily pay for the maintenance of the temple? John Gill says, Jesus argues that, quote, since he was the son of the king of kings, for the support of whose worship and service that money was collected, and was also the lord and proprietor of the temple, and greater than that, he might, be well, he might well be excused the payment of it. Nevertheless, Christ continues in verse 27. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself, right? So there, Christ says, let's just do it to avoid offense. At that point, that would have created an unnecessary conflict in his overall mission of redemption. So just to avoid offense, just pay the tax, right? Similarly, Christians are to be wise to avoid unnecessary offense, right? In some ways, offense is, is inevitable if you're a Christian because the word of the cross is offensive. But we are to avoid unnecessary offense, something that might hinder the spread of the gospel. Paul says, for example, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 10 through 12, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Again, as we've seen before, the avoiding of offenses for the furtherance of the gospel. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 32 through 33, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. So again, there might be a law that we might not consider to be the best kind of law. Maybe it's not contrary to God's word. And yet, because we don't want to just create a big fuss over that. We want the gospel to go forward. We might just obey it in that sense to avoid scandal as well, okay? So those are the two main things, um, contempt and scandal. Those are to be avoided. If you can do something, however, without contempt or scandal, you're not bound by a certain law. And next time, we'll get into the, the more fun things um, of what happens when what are generally wholesome laws begin to go into overreach, and then eventually into tyranny. At what point um, and what courses of action should you take then? There's actually a huge body of literature on this. Um, and we'll see at the most extreme cases, it's totally lawful to take up arms. They, uh, the Puritans would use the term defensive arms. 
um, to defend yourself from tyranny. Um, and so all those modern British Christians who are like, oh, the American Revolution should have never happened, it's like, maybe just go back like 300 more years in your own history, uh, and didn't you guys like behead a king? Like, okay, we never even did that here. But anyway, um, but the Puritans wrote a lot about this because this was a hot-button issue. You had those who were for the king saying, you need to obey the king. He's a lawful authority. Your conscience is bound to obey him. And then you had the parliament and you had Puritans saying, the king is destroying our liberties. He's taking away all sorts of liberties that God has given to us. God has not taken away these liberties. And he's totally going against that. And they would say, in such cases, you can even take up arms, okay? That'll be the farthest case. There's, other, there's another middle ground we have to look at first where it's not quite there. We will get there eventually, okay? Um, that's it for, for today. Any questions before we move on? Could be what? Yeah. Yeah, that that would not be contempt. That would not be contempt. Uh, There's nothing wrong with seeking to make good laws uh, and to make better laws and even to overcome those that are not, that are kind of wonky. Um, Contempt has a very specific meaning um, and it has to be attached to others. Uh, You have to violate more than just disagreeing with someone Um, because you had, again, and and we can, uh, you could read George Gillespie on this um, or others who were parliamentarians who were saying that almost like to in any way oppose the authority of the king is contempt. And they were like, that's not contempt. That is too thin of a definition. So contempt is it's much more than that. Um, that I don't think any Reformed writer, um, maybe like some high church Anglican might, might have argued that that would be contempt. But I've, I've not read anything that I would say where they would say that's truly contempt. So yeah, there'd be nothing opposed to even making good laws. Um, it, it just comes down at the end of the day where you don't agree with something. It's maybe not the best. You're not, you're not persuaded it's the best. It's generally a wholesome law. Um, I guess I, your question is like, it tends towards something bad. Then I would say that probably takes away the wholesome aspect of it. Um, and, and that would be a case that we'll look at more next week. Um, where there's other, there's other avenues to take. So that's, yeah, that's right, if that's helpful. Yeah, good question, though. Any other, any other questions? Okay, you guys are just...